You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. What's in your hand? What are you drinking? I'm drinking a Zevia, Bracken. Isn't that what all of your co-hosts are required to do? A hundred percent of my co-hosts have been Zevia drinkers. You're two for two, Bracken. Are you trolling me or do you really like Zevia? I'm just messing with you. This is a terrible drink. No, I actually Benny. drink these. So, so I drink the Zevia Energy, not like the Zevia Soda. And I, I like this instead of an energy drink. And I'm trying to perk myself up for this podcast bracket. So that's what you're getting today. You've been up late? Or are you still recovering from that heck of a first run back? Ooh, I was not up late. I was up early, though. But I went for my first run. I told the people I would. And I did. Um, I didn't take my own advice. Come on. you. We finished recording. And he tells me, I'm going to go run a mile, but I might just do incline instead so that I don't do anything dumb. I said, all right, good luck. He texts me a picture of his watch and says, okay, go ahead and yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> Three miles at 618 average. Whoops. That's not what you do after five months of not running a step. Well, here's here's how I justify this, um, is that, you know, I took a whole extra month off of running longer than when I thought maybe I could test the waters like the beginning of October. And I still had some residual pain, but didn't think it was from the bone still healing, maybe some soft tissue stuff. So I already took an extra month off, more than what I was planning to originally. So I got running on soft trails, don't worry. And I just, there was no pain, Brack, and I'm not lying to you. And I just had, I just had to keep going. It felt so good. It was amazing. I had never smiled so much on a run in my life because honestly, I fully expected for there to be some residual pain in there and there just wasn't. And so I had to. I mean, I get it. I I felt that same feeling two months ago. It's a fantastic feeling, but who rolls out of bed after five months and just plops right into 618 pace? I could run faster too. I know. (laughs) It just felt good to work. Felt good to work. And, um, and I'm going to be smart and this, this I, I will stick with at least for the first few weeks is I'm only going to run twice a week. So I'm going to only do two runs a week, probably for two or three weeks and then add a third run, but a very short one in and probably just stay at the three miles um, twice a week for two weeks and then see where I'm at after that. But I'm not going to run very frequently. I'm going to keep it infrequent um, just to make sure there's enough time in between runs for any of that inflammation to subside. So that, that you can hold me to. Well, I'm excited for you. It's a, thanks brother. It's a fantastic time to be back. So you have what had a have you made a calendar year without a foot issue since you entered OCR? No, uh, my first year, sure, but in recent times, uh, my left foot has been my Achilles heel, so to speak. So what's what's without getting too far into this? What's the prevention plan moving forward? Are you just reevaluating yeah. how you go about things? Um, yeah, I'm gonna err more on the side of caution with run volume and replace it with more non-impact volume. Um, and I'm going to, I'm on vacation this week. I'm recording from Turtle Lake, Wisconsin, where I have this sweet hotel room with floral pattern sheets. It's real nice. Um, but when I return from this vacation, I am going to uh, get in touch with Mr. Diaz. We're going to go over some form stuff and just see if I can start there. And then I'll decide how I'm going to approach it. But I, 
I want to work with him just to see if there's something I'm missing. So that'll be the beginning plan. And then I'm going to stay on top of my prehab by seeing my guru doc here in the cities as well. Um, and I think those are smart places to start. I agree. What would you do, back, Well, that's what I would do as well. Yep. But then once you're back, are you considering avoiding peak fitness? No, I'm... I something about I, on my 16th run, I got to run a fast 5k. So I'm going to be trying to peak for my 16th run back so I can beat your 5k time. You will, because that's what you do. <laughs> but in terms of you generally get really fit and then you hit like this next level of fitness and then you get hurt, not necessarily yep. because of that, but that's your timing. Are you considering staying more at that 90 to 95% range and sitting there and trying to race off that indefinitely rather than walk with walk walk on fire i like this sort of uh therapy session we're going through here this is i'm not trying to lead you into it these are things that i've been Um, about i i will i will be reevaluating where i let my volume and intensity and frequency of intensity go i have i'm in no rush and something that i've talked about on this podcast before and i just felt this when i went for my first run is that I've been hitting really intense assault bike work, right? I have not done the run motion in a long time, but this run was easier than most of those assault bike workouts I did. Mm-hmm. I got in there and didn't feel nearly as blown up. My engine and lungs and everything was like, hey, like this is nothing you haven't felt recently. I felt a little clunky once I got some fatigue built in there, but like I am telling you, man, if you just stay on top of that high-end non-impact work, um, You'd be surprised. Like I'm not nearly as far back as I thought I would be. And so it's just something for people to keep in mind that all is not lost if if you are injured. I think that you can keep a lot of fitness if you do it right. So um and, and that piggybacks your question, which then I would say I may incorporate a lot more of that stuff over running on some days um, to be smart. So I'll sort through all that. I'm in no rush. I don't think racing is returning as early as we would like. And so I don't feel pressure of time. So, and much like you, I think you're slow playing this a little bit, mm-hmm. even though you've a been doing some big runs. Yeah. So we could use each other as accountability there. And we will, of course. Yeah. Those are good questions though. And that stuff, I, you know, I didn't know where this first run would take me. And so now I'll have to think it all out as, as I progress. But well, speaking of questions, today is an ask me anything episode. We had Q and A's, but this isn't your standard Q and A. Anyone who's ever been on Reddit or Bleacher Report or something like that has seen an AMA. Ask me anything where people just fire questions. Sometimes they're useful. Sometimes they're topical. Sometimes they're random. And we're starting with random. Yeah, we are. And and we did obviously we did a Q and A earlier this week. We had a guest lined up, but what sometimes happens in these uh, podcast worlds is that guests fall through, and so. This has been our backup plan, and we've been looking forward to doing something like this. So that's why you're getting two sort of Q&As in one week. Mm-hmm. So starting with random topics, Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> Would you rather your burps smell like farts or have your farts <laughs> be visible to others? Don't you feel like it's important to say who asked these questions if they're going to be ridiculous? Looks like Matthew Kemp. Matthew Kemp. Kemp. 715. Matthew Kemp. He's a guy I coach. It's a, good, it's a great question, Matt. Repeat the question. Would you rather have your burps smell like farts? Or your farts be visible to others? Wow. Mine's a no-brainer. I'd probably say uh, burp smell like farts. Exactly. You can go do that. constantly. People would always (laughs) just, that's all they'd see around me. Come on. How often are we talking? I don't know. I'd I'd say no less than 20 or 30 a day. I think that's normal. That's pretty constant. 
I think that's that's normal. Why don't you count for us and get back to us next episode? I mean, if I eat soy, it's up to about 100 or 200 a day. I think I'm less than that, actually. So, all right. That's a good question. Good way to kick it off, Matt. <laughs> Continue. Most sneaky move used against you in a race. Most sneaky move yep. used against Sneakiest you. Sneakiest move someone ever pulled out on you. Does something come to mind for you right away? I can't say I've ever been like snuck past in a race, but I've had sketchy moves pulled. Mm. You know, something that you told me before my first stadium race that I'd never, I've only run one and I was in Green Bay with you. And you had mentioned cutting tangents and picking the right bleacher line so that when you make your next turn, you have like the inside angle or you're not getting cut off or you're decreasing distance. And I did not do that. And somebody took the right bleacher lane. It was either Kent or Killian as they were passing me. And they completely cut me off, even though I was doing everything in my power to not let that happen uh, because I picked the wrong line and then I was stuck in it. So for sure that I got passed completely due to my choice of line and they, they snuck past me being more cerebral. Cerebral racing reminds me of one. There was a, at the alumni cross country race at Whitewater. It was always end of summer. So coming off your base phase, we'd have a a non-scored but scored alumni versus the team cross-country race. And there was a couple studs who were alumni. And one of them won the race and destroyed our our stud freshman who was, you know, supposed to step right in and challenge for a national title. And I, mm. I, I hung on for a little bit and then got dropped because I suck at cross-country. But what mm-hmm. I noticed and what he talked about afterwards was how he dropped him. He accelerated out of every time there was something that broke a line of sight. So when you're running down the trail, as soon as he turned a sharp turn, he took three to five really fast strides out of it. And so every time or went over a little rise, every time there was a little gap in your vision, he put another second. And so every Mm -hmm. time you saw him, he was further away than he appeared. And it just demoralized our stud runner and the rest of us. And he ran away with it, despite maybe not being as talented or in as good a shape. He was really sneaky. And and I really like that tactic. I love that. Um, it's something I think about in Spartan racing or trail racing. Constantly. And, and that's something that maybe people don't think about. But if you know that they can't see you, every time that happens, it's a perfect place to put in a surge. You have to have the fitness to do it, though. Clearly, like I was in good shape because mm-hmm. those little hits do add up when you put those surges in. But um, that's going through my head all race in, in most trail races. How about you? Yeah, and off-road is the perfect time to use it because your your vision gets impeded so often. And when you're trailing someone, if you could be beating them, you generally would. And so the only way to catch back up is to have something in the tank or have hope that they're falling apart, that you're gaining. And so when someone goes out of sight and you see them again, if they're closer than you remember, that's a little like bonus nugget for you and you get to go after it. But if they're farther each time, it saps your will to compete. So it's such a good tactic. Um, One other sneaky one that I recall now was my senior year of high school when it was the sectional meet to qualify for state. And I'll never forget the kid from Pulaski High School, John Zitlow, if you are listening, he went around a corner 10 uh, 10 meters behind me and he came out 10 meters in front of me because he cut the flag and cut the tangent. And I ended up having a sprint finish with him and I tried to protest it and nobody would believe me because I was all alone in the woods with the guy and that prick cheated. And their team went to state, barely beating out another team by like a few points. And he, I didn't outkick him either. Anyways, cheaters. That that he snuck up on me pretty good though, Bracken. All right, 
since we're getting into cheating realm, I had a guy pull a flag back in cross country and then release it and then it hit me in the, the temple. Well, that's just downright rude. Pretty much stunned me. Took me out of my race for a good half mile. Did you also know that I have been tripped by Chris Selinski in the final stretch of a cross country race going around the final flag at sectionals the year prior to this? He outkicked me as well. He stepped on my heel and I supermaned 50 meters before the finish line. You were in a kick on the home stretch with Chris Selinski. Yeah. The first white, the first non-African to break 27 minutes in a, five, in a 10K. Yeah, I had a kick home with him. Wow. And he was a freshman. I was a junior. And he uh, he tried to cut inside of the flag of me, caught the back of my heel. I tripped and fell, and he beat me. That's incredible. So I had my one chance, and I, I, I missed, missed uh, beating him. You could him have been undefeated team. lifetime against him. No, he beat me the next year at sectional. Ah, uh, yeah. Did he win state that next year? He won state the next three years. Yes. That was the year I he tripped me was the only year he did. He was a cool <laughs> man. Yeah. Um, all right. Should I fire one off? Fire. This is from Obstacle Running Adventures. Ooh, this is a loaded question, Bracken. Favorite OCR podcast, excluding your own, asked by Obstacle Running Adventures. You going to go political here? I'm going to say it's a tie. Okay. Reinforced running mm-hmm. and ORM. Why is it a tie? They're very different. Because those are the two I go to when I want information. I go to Rich when I want to hear what he's interviewed someone about. They have a good topic I'm interested in. I know he gets some good info out there. And I go to Matt when I want updates in the industry. News, gossip, shenanigans, any, like a race announcement. I know that he has the most up-to-date breaking news in the sport. So those are the two. Yeah. I pick and choose my Matt B. Davis podcasts based mm-hmm. on what's going on with it. I do really like a podcast called Science of Ultra. I probably learned the Not most. OCR. I you know, said. but... Uh, it applies because it's like trail running. Uh, okay. So Science of Ultra it can be dry, but I've learned a lot from that podcast. Uh, I only listen to one every like 10 episodes. That intrigues me. But um, other than that, I'm going to go reinforce running. I think he does a nice job. I think he does a nice job of interviewing people that aren't always interviewed. Um, he has a little different approach than we do as well, which I like. Um, so I'm going to go reinforce running. I will say this. And this isn't shots at anyone in particular, but I find most running podcasts to be tedious and I can't listen to them. I'll tune into a podcast that I'm not a listener of when they have a guest I like, and I just wish they would stay out of their own way a lot of the time, or they're really super knowledgeable and just the most boring person on earth. So Mm -hmm. it makes me wonder how many people say that same thing about us. But yeah, I don't Mm -hmm. listen to a lot of running podcasts. I just pick and choose guests. Yeah, I'm very similar that way. Uh, aside from some of my outdoor podcasts I listen to, which then you know you got a good one. It doesn't matter who's on or what's being discussed. You know you're going to get something out of it, and those are the good ones. Exactly. You got one for us, Bracken? Oh, I've got a lot, Kirk. Okay, I got plenty too. Why don't you coach for free? We do. It's called the who, Running who Public asked, Podcast. Who asked, who asked this? Marshall McAllister. And what did you say? What are free? What is our free coaching? It's called the Running Public Podcast. It's free yeah. verbal coaching. Yeah, jerk. You're already getting it for free. Yeah. And the rest <laughs> of it is I got mouths to feed. I got a family to raise. Um, all right. I, I'm I'm going to just ask this. It's just to you, Bracken. Came into my personal page, though, <laughs> okay. which is interesting. Uh, Fortitude Functional Fitness. Is there actually a secret to shaving your undercarriage, Bracken? Question mark. You didn't use the word undercarriage. No. No secret. secret. Time on feet. Time on feet. You get more efficient. Time on feet. More time on feet. All right, we'll leave it alone. Will you beat Kirk in your first race back against each other? Yeah, of course. Come on. I've already explained my mindset coming back out of this. 
I'm showing up to every race to beat every person at every race. I don't care if it's Kirk, my mom, John Albin, I'm showing up there to put them into the ground. I can't afford to have any other mindset. Kirk has the exact same one. He's showing up to beat me. Yeah, And we're going to have a lot of fun during the race together if we're near each other. I'm already attempting to beat you on my 16th run back. Listen, this has already started. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We're happy for each other's accomplishments, but we're going to kill ourselves in order to beat the other person. It'll be interesting when we start racing again and Bracken, you know, beats me or I beat Bracken. And then we see how the, uh, how the banter goes on the podcast the following week. If one of us is a little, you know, but it's the beginning of the end of this show. (laughs) (laughs) Racing season's the worst thing that ever happened to this podcast for us. Here's something you need to know about Kirk and I, if you haven't picked up on it already, we are insanely competitive and we like each other. So I'm happy for Kirk when he's successful. And yet Kirk is someone for me to beat. And so that's just the dynamic we're going to have. We support each other and we're going to try to annihilate each other. It's better that way. We get more out of each other if it works that way. Mm -hmm. That's how it should be. Um, I also wonder, so Bracken, where, where do you think we'll cross paths first? It's a good question. And if we're both healthy, I bet it's at the first national series or stadium race series event Mm -hmm. because we'll want to get out there and race. And the first national series race is generally not mountains. It's generally a safe course. And so it makes sense for us to do. If I were guessing, I will think Montana is the first national series race this year. May 1st, Mm -hmm. Montana. I have zero insight on that. That's just a guess. And that's a course that's mountain-ish, but it's not at altitude and it's soft. Seems like a good place that Kirk and I might show up and throw down. Yeah, I would not hesitate. What's the elevation in Whitefish? Is that where it is, Whitefish? I think it's in Whitefish, Montana, yeah. I'm just curious if altitude is going to be a factor. Or Honestly, not. it's like two or 3,000 feet. So it's lower for a mountain, a mountain. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Let's throw down. But we'll, we'll right. be at several races together. Oh, unless, are you going to be ready by January for the abominable snow race? Maybe. Is that going <laughs> Maybe on? it happened in the woods of Wisconsin where no one sees it. In the abominable, is that happening for sure? Yes. Okay. New location, it. though. It's not a mountain mm-hmm. anymore, which is too bad. Um, all right. We do have some regular questions in here as well. So I'm just going in order. Okay. Sprinkle men. Caleb 8833. What type of run sessions should I do if I plan on focusing on sprints and stadiums next season? (laughs) What type of run sessions should Caleb be doing if he's focusing on the short stuff? I mean, come on, man. This is what the podcast (laughs) is about. You start slower than race pace with strength running. And as you get closer to race day, you get closer to race speed and eventually you're doing faster than race pace work. And then you have for the first sprints and stadiums, you have to do compromise running workouts because transition skill is so important. That's not a shot at you. Mm-hmm. So you got to keep your threshold work in there. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, no matter what, no matter what distance we're running, everyone gets really fatigued by obstacles and no one's running much faster than 10 K pace after a while. Mm-hmm. That's why I think threshold work is like the staple of all OCR, no matter what distance you're running, because that's where we're sitting most of the time. And then don't forget your hill work, um, especially in stadium, hit the stairs, hit uphill, hit hit downhill, some pretty uh, uh, damaging stuff, because that's going to be part of the race. Mm-hmm. Favorite and least favorite OCR race you've ever done and why? I hate Utah. <laughs> I hate Utah, both venues. I don't hate the venue. I just never suck wind coming from sea level to elevation like I do when I go to Utah. Two years in a row, it's the worst I've ever felt in my life in a race, and I felt ready and pretty much tapered. 
So I think it's the elevation, but I'm just going to be a baby as a Midwestern guy and say Utah because I feel like crap every time I go there. How's that? I like it. You do? Yeah. I hate it. No, no. I'm saying I like your answer. Yeah. What about you? My least favorite courses that I ever do are the Chicago Spartan course because when it's warm, it's just cross country. It is pancake flat cross country, and that's not my skill set. And I do not like racing out in California. As much as I love California as a state, it's those rolling hills. It's just terrible for me. It's exposed. There's no trees. For some reason, I can run faster on the same terrain if I'm surrounded by a forest than if I'm just looking at the sky and endless nothingness. So just mentally, I don't like those two locations. Hmm. It's kind of like, you know, when you're running in like a tight trail or you're running at night and everything seems to be flying by you way faster and you build this like mental momentum from that. Is that what yeah. you're missing in those big open country I races? So. I think so. It's, it has to be entirely mental, but yeah. So Temecula and, or Monterey and Chicago, least favorite. I think a tough thing. I think a tough thing is like, we like to, we do best in terrain or environments that are similar to where we live. So I love heading east because it feels the same. It's muggy. It's the same feel. South is kind of the same at times. Uh, but every time the further west we go, it's like, oh, this just doesn't feel quite right. Since it's always a little more of an adaptation, I think. Favorite now? Uh, Chicago when it's flat <laughs> and fast in a cross-country course. <laughs> uh, horses for courses, right? Uh, yeah, and then I really... I really love the the West Virginia course. I'm not alone there, but I yes. just think when you're talking balance of features, that that course is closer to sea level, has all the elements to really declare who I think is one of the most deserving. The winners of that day usually comes comes through, and I like. I have that. a type, and it's wooded. It's technical mixed with some fast trails, and so that's Asheville, West Virginia, the Pack Northwest course, the old Chicago course. Uh, the Atlanta course that was down um, on those little island chains. That That's the kind of course where it's it's a mix of everything. It's not all one thing and there's technical running on course. So same with you, mm-hmm. West Virginia type courses. Yeah. I'd love to see a super at West Virginia. Mm-hmm. That's what I would like to see. As well all right. Uh, Got a lot of hair questions. How often do you yeah. shave your head? How much do you save annually on hair products? Is there a key to when you shave your head? Do you shave it before races as part of your routine? There's a lot of people curious about my my scalp. Answer. I don't think I save on hair product annually because I don't think most men spend much on hair products in terms of the shower. I still use conditioner every time, keep my scalp all nice and smooth. Oh, yeah. Wait, you, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Let me stop you. So you, you actually put conditioner on your head? Like a dime size. I just rub it. I shave my head. I get in the shower and I rub conditioner all over it. Is that standard protocol for someone who shaves their head? I guess I didn't know. This. I don't know. We don't like have meetings about this. Oh, there's not like a support group? There probably is, but I feel like I'm, if I stoop to that level, then I'm a bald man. Mm. If I'm just shaving my head, I'm just an athlete. That's true. You know? If you're shaving your legs, you're just an athlete. I've never done that. No? Uh, wow. I didn't know the conditioner thing on your head. That's, I don't know why that's right, Well, some people use lotion after they shave, but it just feels like such a greasy thing. So I do mm. it in the shower. And then I don't know if. I think it probably cancels out. I don't have haircuts, which is obviously very cost effective, but I go through razors twice as fast as the normal guy then. Mm. I've touched your head before and it's very soft. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate your appreciation. Yeah. Thank you for that. All right. Uh, anything else you want to add about your head? 
Uh, how often I do it? Every two to three days. I also don't shave against the grain, so it's not like full cue ball. I just go with it or sideways, and there's there's always a just a slight stubble there. Mm. It's basically like shaving with no guard or buzzing with no guard without the uh, the tearing up your skin that happens with constantly buzzing your head with no guard. Little, little right. fun facts. And yes, it is a part of my pre-race and big workout routine. I shave my head the night before every race and big workout because you got to mm. feel good. You got to look good to feel good, feel good to run good. That's science. What about your facial hair? I just buzz it. Buzz it. Yeah, I just always buzz it. I either go like a one or a no guard and just buzzer every couple of days. All right. But I do fully get down smooth upper lip and down around here and keep the rest buzzed because those are my kissing muscles there. <laughs> Still making out with Lisa quite often. Right. You don't want just beard burn. <laughs> no, that's terrible. All right. J.R. Striffler. This is actually an old uh, personal training client of mine who does not live in state anymore. Jeremy, uh, any benefit to doing multiple track workouts, shorter intervals, sprints per week? I think he's saying any benefit to doing more of those versus steady running. Depends what the purpose is. If you're slow, yeah. Yeah, get some more in there. If you're coming up to a fast race, sure. If you're sprinkling in mini ones on top of threshold work, that's beautiful. He's not a runner per se. Like I wouldn't say he's somebody who's trying to, maybe he is now, it's been a couple of years, but um, I would say whatever, if you're, if you're, um, trying to achieve fitness, if it gets you out the door and excites you more and you just can't bear the thought of going and running steady, you can do that every single dang time until you pick a goal that you're training for just to, you know, build or keep fitness. I would say keeping the ball rolling is more important than periodized training. If you are not having a race on the schedule and steady running drives you nuts. Yeah. And I think that if you're not training for races, you're training for life. You want to not get injured doing random activities. And if you're helping a buddy move or if you play pickup basketball or jump in a, a, a you know, a co-ed soccer game or something like that. And so with that mindset, if I'm not a racer, I'm still going to be doing intensity because intensity activates every area of your body and it injury proofs you as long as the intensity doesn't injure you. So I'd be doing power clean still, uh, probably more power clean than I do now. I would still be deadlifting. Mm -hmm. I would still be running high intensity efforts from time to time because that's life proofing and injury prevention. Yeah, I agree with that. You're up. I am up. Ooh, this is a good one. Fortitude Functional Fitness asks, do you and Kirk actually follow the 80-20 method? Considering 80% is zone two or under. Well, I don't consider 80% zone two or under. So. I don't either. But the simple answer is yes, we follow that. And oftentimes I think it's probably more like 85-15, but we let easy creep up into zone three because we consider anything that's below aerobic threshold to be the 80. Correct. So maybe recovery a little higher than zone two, but um, I will say that when I'm cross training, I tend to, I don't follow the 80, 20 principle as closely. I'm probably like, honestly, 50, 50. I do like four sessions a week and two of them are hard and two of them are easy, but that's not impact. And I, and they aren't treated the same in my opinion. If I was mixing running in with all of that, then I would go back to the 80-20 adherence. But cross-training, I don't. I am about a 50-50. Oh, if you look at cyclists, they do you can, a huge amount of blocks at threshold power work. You know, sweet correct. spot training. So it's less impactful when you're not impacting the ground. But yeah, we yeah. follow it 100%. Um, 100%. And I'm going to even be following it more strictly moving forward. And, and one thing we do really hope people are picking up on you know, between the not pimping our like magic process that you have to hire us to figure out, like we'll give it away in the podcast and not having all these corporate sponsors to sponsor the show is that we don't really do anything for the sake of selling you on it. We do mm -hmm. it because it works and we, we do it. Like if we don't live it, if we don't do it, we don't preach it. 
And there are little pieces that we forget from time to time, you know, like what, where I was off with my consistency or I was missing some speed work, but we don't like claim a magic system that we don't follow. We talk about 80-20 and we refer people to Matt Fitzgerald's book. It's not like we wrote a book on it and we're trying to pimp mm -hmm. that product. We don't really sell you anything here. We just want to tell you the things that work. Yeah. We are making $0 on this podcast. We have yeah. been for a long time. Yeah. We made money <laughs> on our first three or four episodes off VJ Shoes and then... It made sense to to move away from that and we haven't made a dime off this so no we absolutely don't talk about things that we don't believe in yeah yeah we're doing it for the good of the people aren't we bracket we are and we're i, I think that we're clear about it when we talk about endura leader vj that we have a relationship with them mm -hmm. yeah and well, i don't have get a relationship back from any product i talk about yeah we don't i don't either lauren jurek what is something you live by city hall uh, I can hear the bells. Tell people you've been watching the last couple of days when we've been recording our podcast. We are a polling station right here. In my backyard <laughs> is a polling station. And it is amazing the amount of people that have just been there night and day. And now it's done. It feels like the apocalypse happened. It's just crickets out here. Because you've been watching lines of people every day to go. Yeah, right out my right. window in the office. Yeah, I can tell because when Bracken and I have been recording, his eyes wander off screen and I can tell he's looking outside at the people in the road. Waiting. I know it's disrespectful to you, but it's the <laughs> ultimate people watching. It's everyone in our city comes through this this little port. If you guys listen closely, once in a while, you'll hear it sounds like wind chimes or bells in the background. Every few episodes we record and it's because the city hall across the street playing their little bells. You'll hear it once in a while, guys, if you if you pay attention. And they don't show up with a sound signature. There's no audio file for them. I can't get out of, I can't get them out without just muting that entire section because I can't isolate it. So if I'm talking, they just have to stay in. If, if you go back 22 minutes, you will hear them from this point in time, roughly, Any because it was noon. Anyways, answer her question. What is something you live by? Not physically, you dummy. Moderation. Including moderation. You're going to throw me that quote? Yeah, I, I live by everything in moderation. I don't believe in denying myself anything. And I don't believe in in um, going all too in on any one thing. I think life's got to be lived in moderation. That's fair. What's that quote? Everything in moderation, including moderation. Ooh, that's a good one. Also, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Live by that. That's something you live by? Yep. That's good. Um, I would say the one thing I try really hard on doing, because um, I work with people all day, um, is like giving everybody the benefit of the doubt and starting from like a place of like, I don't know, like I give everybody, everybody's glass is half full and everybody is my friend until they prove otherwise. And I used to be someone who would pass a lot of judgment or I would say, I don't know, not give people the time of day or credit because of my own predisposition, not theirs. And so working with people who've had hard lives and come from hard places, and you wonder how somebody gets to be 400 pounds and depressed and you pass judgment initially and say, oh, it's because they're weak or oh, because they they have no self-control. Well, I know much better than that now that like life has been hard for a lot of people and that. So I, I always approach with empathy, I think I would say, and it's not something I've always done. So that's one thing like I, I try to live by that, honestly enough. Unless. What? Unless they're internet critics. Ooh, internet critics can suck it. You have no tolerance for online trolls. I and I'm not judging you for that. I'm just... Do you have some examples? And when people like fire off a, a, a question to us on, on, <laughs> on Messenger or Instagram, you have no tolerance for, for, for idiots, for people who are out no there bashing. 
I have no, yeah, I have no, no tolerance for like screen warriors who can hide behind their screens and say whatever. Yep. And most of the time they're just looking for a response. So I, yeah, I, I'm pretty quick to fire back. What happens sometimes guys is this. So somebody will message us something that I don't like. And so I may give them a sharp response, which I think is warranted. And then I go back and look and Bracken plays cleanup and gives them like a secondary, nicer response. So that's Bracken, Bracken saving the day. Thank you, Bracken. I'm working on my being being kind to everyone, Kirk. I'm trying to be <laughs> more empathetic, just like you. So apparently mind I'm not. Parts, what did I tell you? I, I'm focusing on two areas of my life, road mm. rage and internet trolls. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really trying to give people the benefit of the doubt when I'm driving and when I'm online. One category of people you don't give the benefit of the doubt is snarky internet trolls. Yeah, Speaking of which, not, this is not an internet troll, by the way. I like her very much. Alexandra Walker sent me a message today mm. and I just got it. Um, and I'll read it, Alexandra, since you're probably listening. Let's see here. My internet's slow. It says, let's get to it. All right. It says, oh, wow, only time I've ever shaken my head at you. Grip endurance matters. Maybe not in Spartan race when it's dry, but I can't believe you said that. That was her response to when I said I thought grip power mattered more than grip endurance. Yeah. And then, and then I gave her kind of a snarky remark, and then we we hashed it. <laughs> <laughs> She's right. She's right. But yeah, power matters more. You can build endurance off of power. We'll leave that one alone. Yeah. Moving on. Let's see here. Were you a Nintendo family or Sega Genesis family growing up? Well, I was old, so Nintendo, because that's all I had. And I was sheltered. We were not allowed to have video games. Really? I bought my first video game system when I was in high school. I bought a PlayStation 2. You were in high school when PlayStation 2 was out? It was out earlier, but I had enough money and permission to buy it when I was probably a sophomore. But what was the reasoning behind the no video games? Uh, we didn't really do screen time in my family. You got a half hour of screen time per day. How'd they and, monitor that? Uh, because our computer was in like a nook in our kitchen uh, and our TV was right off that. And and we were good kids. We followed the rules. But that was mm -hmm. it. So there's not a whole lot of time for video games. You'd get 30 minutes. Plus, AIM had come out, you know, AIM Instant Messenger. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to be spending 30 minutes chatting with uh, with the uh, fellow middle schoolers, I don't have time for, for video games. So I got my video games at other people's houses. What was your screen name on AIM? I remember just sitting up all night after, like in high school chatting on AIM. What was your username? <sighs> I think it was Bracken0502. Okay. That's a good I think one. That at some point it was. I don't remember what my original one. <laughs> <sighs> I figured it'd be embarrassing, but maybe not. I don't think I had an embarrassing one ever. Do you have anything awesome? Uh, mine was Da Wind, like Duh wind zero nine because my freshman year of high school i showed up to practice and the seniors were like man you run like the wind the wind and then it stuck so everybody called me the wind and zero nine is my soccer number so those are like i never had a cool nickname easy easy way to get to that screen name all right this is an important one okay mm -hmm. nick Riker, fmk vj max vj extreme vj irox Ooh, i like that i'm gonna marry you know, I'm going to marry the extreme. Ooh, okay. I was going to say I'm going to marry the max, but I'm going to kill the max. Okay, why? Because the extreme can do most of what it can do, but it can also race. Like, you know, they say, get you one that can do both. That's the extreme. That would be my spouse. One that can can be both, you know? And uh -huh. so the, the max is dead. And then F, the, uh, the IROX. They're sleek. They're gnarly. They're nasty. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to F the IROX too. Yeah. 
they're just aggressive and you just want to get in there right so I, dji rocks i'm gonna f i'm going to kill the extreme okay mostly just because i don't know looking at it as it's probably the best shoe but i don't know I, the max i have to marry the max because they just endure man they're just the yeah. longer smoother you know ride and that's what you have you nothing want. to worry so about i'm gonna marry the max, the max. You can go 30 years, 40 years with that max. You got nothing to worry about. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. Nick Riker also says, what's an AMA? Come on, man. Ask me anything. Isn't he young enough to know that? We should not know that. He should know that. Yeah. Bracken. This is from Derek Rubis. Derek Rubis, running fan extraordinaire. Mm -hmm. Bracken, what differences did you find when you went from regular running to Spartan race? And I think it was that broken rhythm running and compromised running. It was so much more brutal than I ever imagined it could be. Mm, I think like brutal in the way, like it's hard to come back once you cross that rev limiter and feeling that earlier in a race than you anticipate and being in debt before you typically would was a really hard adjustment. That's what I would say. Yeah. I never truly understood how much we run in a vacuum, even in cross country and in track where all we're doing is trying to be the most efficient little machine as possible and save it up until you sprint at the end. Where like in track, if you get bumped off your course or if you get tripped, you're usually done with the race because it costs so much energy to get back up and you need every little ounce of energy that you're done. And OCR is nothing but getting bumped off course in terms mm -hmm. of like your, your system. So I didn't realize how much of a specialist I was, despite thinking I was this great well-rounded athlete. Mm. Know who'd have been a good OCR athlete? Lasse Viren. Lasse Viren. Lasse Viren. What is he? He's from uh, Norway. What was he? Norway or Sweden. Norway yeah. or Sweden. He fell down in the 1972 U.S. Olympic 10,000 meter finals, got spit out the back, came all the way back to win and set the Olympic record. That's impressive. That guy he might be able to He went sub two his wall. last 800, I think. He ran sub two in his last 800 after falling, getting spit out the back. That race is a great race to watch. And then... Because they had all the kidnapping and bombings, he got a few days extra rest, and then he went back and beat Prefontaine in the whole field in the uh, 5K a few days later. Impressive man. He was as um, good as it got. Yeah, he was. David Megiddo asks, who would win between you and a fight? Does it depend on the type of combat sport? Question Come on, mark? we're both lovers. No, let's, dude, I'm killing you, dude. There's not a chance. I got a lower center of mass. I'm a little shorter than you. I'm going to get underneath you. I'm going to throw you on your back, and then I'm going to give you an elbow right to the trachea. Bah! It's not happening. Yeah? Nah. I was a lateral athlete. I played soccer. You I'm not a saying lateral athlete. athlete. I'm just saying that if we're going about this, I don't think there are very many people in this entire sport that I'd be worried about. How, uh, how I have an extremely inflated sense of my own ability to, to, to protect myself and to deal out damage. So you're just going to have to understand that I think that I'm way more capable in every situation than I ever am. As a man should, and so do I. It's going to be a problem. Yeah. So one of us is going to have to die in this fight. Oh, that's why I think we would just be back-to-back -back taking down the hordes of enemies attacking us. Uh, I think that'd be better suited for us. What would be your approach if it was me and you squaring off like Spartan game style, the whistle blows, and we're just standing there? What do you do first? In a wrestling competition? Yeah. I, you, what do you, you do? You get into my body, and I'd, I'd try to get a hip toss on you or something. I'd use your momentum coming in and throw you. That's a good idea because I'm going to go hard for your knees. Just hard for those knees right off the bat. <laughs> Low. All right, we can move on. <laughs> Custard or ice cream? Custard. Ice cream. I like good, thick, chunky ice cream. I like stuff inside of it. <laughs> I, I like custard, just better texture. That's fine. I'm not looking right. to bite you on it. 
Uh, we're looking to fight, apparently. Obstacle Running Adventures has two more. Least favorite OCR athlete in the sport. You don't need you don't need to answer since you aren't obstacle dominator in parentheses. Least favorite OCR athlete in the sport. Do you care to go there? Everyone already knows. There's only one person I think in the entire world of OCR that I've ever had a distasteful experience with, and it's been on like two dozen different occasions. <clears throat> so there's I like the entire sport minus one person, and everyone yeah. already knows who that is. So I don't need to drag him over the coals again. I haven't had one person be a true prick to me in this sport. I mean, that I that I can think of. So no, we're extremely lucky. We have a fantastic community. We really do. I don't know any other sport, even even the like when you look at the running scene and the run community, even in college, um, still it is. It's it's more. E I mean, we all are ego driven in some capacity, but like talk about ego driven. That is like the hierarchy of your social class is practically dependent on how good you perform it is a bizarre thing we're here some of my best friends are open athletes and competitive wave doesn't matter if you beat me or you're 20 yeah. minutes behind me and it's just a nice thing about the sport yeah another question who would win in a fight bracken or kirk people really want to know this is this not somebody that's already asked a question it's not magita okay wow if you could live anywhere to train explore and run as much as you want where are you gonna live go ahead <laughs> i mean can i just cheat and say europe <laughs> that's not specific all the enough. mountains of europe no you can't cheat and say that well colorado then where i i lived out there for what almost three years and loved every second of it and never ever ran out of trails it's not my ideal location it's not my ideal region it's not mm -hmm. my ideal type of forest i like a little bit more precipitation in my life and and more technical running but i don't know it's hard to Hard to beat that, at least in the U.S. And I, I couldn't commit. I know I could live there the rest of my life. I don't know if I could commit to living somewhere I've never been before. Mm. I think if we were talking performance and sport, if that was the main objective, yeah, that's of this, yeah, it would definitely be. I'd want to live somewhere where I could sleep uh, seventy five hundred feet or above, but have a quick drive down to like four thousand feet. So I'd find a town with uh, you know some about four thousand feet of elevation, get under five thousand, but live at 75 or above. Um, I come down to do speed work, get my mountain work in, get my vert in. It would be probably, I think the best case scenario. Um, I'm a big fan of the uh, Canmore Banff uh, right. area. You have Calgary, which isn't too far away, which you could drive down into and, and do speed work and then live up in, in those mountains. Beautiful, beautiful terrain out there. So if I could get to Canada, I would, I think I'd, I'd probably live there. Tell you what, though, if it wasn't for performance, if it was just for life enjoyment, I would live at sea level with mountains like in Anchorage or certain places <clears> in Spain or France, uh, even like Norway or Scandinavia, uh, Ireland, places where you have sea level and mountains right out your back door and you can have both. Mm -hmm. that, that would be my my perfect, perfect location. Dude, West Coast, like Palm Springs, you have um, – you have a single climb from base to summit that's over 8,000 feet of straight climbing. You can leave at 500 feet and end up at 85, 8,700 feet. And places like that would be great. Yeah, they would be. Yeah. Um, Obstacle Running Adventures, last question. What's your favorite Northeast OCR athlete? Northeast? Oh, there's a lot. I mean, I like Megiddo. I like Jung Young Pack. I like Kempson's. I am going to have to say my – are we talking favorite person or favorite racer? Athlete says so doesn't say person. Favorite Northeast OCR athlete. I'm sure I'm gonna forget someone and be really rude by forgetting, but I will say Ryan Kempson. 
that man just empties his tank in every race. He hits the throttle and he doesn't let off until the race is over. And I really enjoy watching that. I admire his, uh, his aggressive racing style. He's always in the race. And if he gets spit out the back, he can be happy knowing that he put himself in position. And, and I really, um, aspire to race more like that more often. So <laughs> I'm going to have to just say on that level, him. Yeah. <clears throat> What's next? Oh, did Bracken's house used to be a swingers hotspot? Red carpet, basement red, door locked, linked to a light. I'm thinking more of a torture chamber. But yeah, there's something weird that happened here. That's absolutely in the realm of possibility. Has this person been to your house? I think I've described it enough and posted pictures of the renovation and such. But no, this Dustin Living Good has not been to my house. Okay. If you could have dinner with someone no longer alive, who would it be? Hmm, dinner with someone no longer alive. There's a lot of people out there, huh? Do you have a quick answer? I do, actually. And it's not the it's not the normal route. People usually choose inspiring or great figures. But uh, my wife's younger brother was killed in a car crash when he was 16. And I met her nine months later. Mm. And so I never met a member of her family. And that's Obviously, way more difficult for her family than it is for me, but it's a great regret that I have is that I didn't meet her earlier because I was at Whitewater twice. I met her the second time at Whitewater, and so I just never mm. even had the opportunity to know Ross. So that's easily, without a doubt, who I would choose. It's a good answer, Bracken. I have a, I'm supposed to have an older sister named Heather who died right after birth, so I'm the oldest, but I'm not supposed to be. I never thought about that, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind meeting her. That'd be cool. Um but uh, I would love to, um, I'd probably just have to go back, just since it's a running podcast, I would love to feel the energy of Steve Prefontaine sit across the table and wonder if he's been romanticized over the years because he died in a car accident or if he really was what we want to believe he was. And I yeah. would just love to know. So I'm going to have to say Steve Prefontaine. I grew up infatuated with him. So I think that would just be running centric, I would say him. Can't go wrong with that answer. <clears throat> yes, I got one. Uh, Zach Gajewski, which is probably not correct. Do you have? Do you two have any sleeping habits or best practices you go by to recover the best? <sighs> Just as much as you can. I mean, if you can get a nap in after a huge race or a workout, do it. But honestly, I struggle to sleep after big, massive efforts. It's almost like a restless leg syndrome. As they start, as I lay in bed, they just throb and ache. And I, I have a hard time falling asleep and they wake me up. My body's fatigue wakes me up out of sleep. So honestly, it's just as much as you can fit in whenever you can fit it in because it's it's a luxury that you got to grab when you can grab it. I'm the same way. I, I get. It's like my body can't quite settle down after a big race or a really hard extenu uh, extenuating workout. Um, I think you take a chapter out of Hobie Call's book where he says he takes a nap every day. A nap. I don't know what the power is. There's a lot of science behind it, but even 15 minutes can sometimes feel like a whole new night night's sleep, especially for hormone production resetting sort of in that way. So the nap, squeeze them in. Don't go out to lunch with your buddies. Go sleep in your car or find a dark room like that. You might be the weirdo, but you also might be the guy feeling good workout. So I, I notice I feel better when I can sneak in a few naps for sure. You know, I don't nap very much anymore, but I did for a while. But in college, I used to nap after every morning workout we did at Whitewater. I would, there was this room, it was kind of like an equipment room and I would take some of the the matting from around the pole vault area. It was, I could detach a piece of it and I just carried in there and I'd lay down on it and I'd be, get done with practice. Everyone else would go home, shower, get ready for class. I just have a water bottle in there. I'd take my, what was it, Endurox afterwards 
mm-hmm. eat a power bar, lay down, and I'd nap for like 45 minutes and then walk to class still in my practice clothes. And <clears throat> I was really healthy that year. Would you be tired and take a nap or knew you should? A lot of times I was tired, but I was doing it no matter what. Every time. Did it not was your routine. Yeah. Yep. You know, the minutes. year I was an All-American in college, my first year, I had an hour gap between my last class and practice. And every single day I came home and snuck in a half hour nap and then went to practice. And man, did I just click that year. And I got a nap in probably three to five days a week. And that made a really big difference. You know, looking back, I think I'm going to try to do that more, Bracken. We've always said the greatest legal performance enhancer you can have is more sleep. 100%. Uh, my buddy Nick Whalen asks, what strategy and place would Bracken get on The Bachelorette? <laughs> I've had people ask me this a lot. Who would do better on The Bachelorette? Not me. That's not my, but you and I, people message, would you do better on The Bachelorette than Kirk did? You did as well as you can do. You got to the end. I would have been eliminated early on. Why would you have been eliminated early on? What do you? It's just not my like social energy. I I feel like you have to come out and project something from the start and be outgoing and snag people's attention. And ah, uh, I just I I don't have any tolerance for those situations where you have to put on a a performance. I'd rather just I'd hang back and and wait until she got intrigued by me and come over and talk, <laughs> and I'd be eliminated before that opportunity probably ever happened. Well, well, you know that. On those shows, Bracken, like the producer comes up to you and says, hey, you know, she's talking to Scott right now. And now it's your time to go ch- chat with her. So I'm going to ask. She's in the back room. So go get her. Say, hey, Scott, can I chat with Allie? And then you go and you chat like it's predisposed like that. Like you will have your chance. Yeah, maybe. So you get to be yourself. The guys who were normal, the guys who weren't flashy are the ones who ended up making it a while. I was one of the more reserved guys. In that sense, I don't think that matters. They can see. I think you do all right because you're conversational. You can connect with people. I appreciate that. I'm also not classically beautiful. You've got that angular jaw, great thick hair. Come on, that's not my life. Oh, start. You know what, though? They haven't had a bald guy go you know, too far on there in a while. They'd be due. They need you. They don't need me. I'm a happily married man, but they can go find their own bald man. Okay, let's just hone on this one more, and then we'll move on. But if you had to, it's like Bracken, this is the, – the bachelorette is Lisa. And somehow she has decided you need to rewin her heart mm. uh, amongst all these other fools. Okay. So now it's a different story. What would be your strategy though? Like what strategy would you put in place? Like if you knew, like I had a strategy, I had a, a thought process. What was yours? What would be yours? Oh, that's a, not a lot of time to come up with a strategy here. I think I'd try to be the anti guy, right? I'd try to be the anti alpha macho man going in there. I'd try to connect with her on a bunch of little levels and remember things about her and bring it up and ask her about it. You know, the same thing you would do in any sort of relationship. Remember the little things, make her feel special, unique, and not like she wasn't just some like piece of meat that I was hunkering after. That's what I did. I told myself, always look her, like always make eye contact. I said, the little things when you're in a room, continue to make eye contact. I said, you're going to make out with that girl as soon as you can. Because because I was reading all this stuff beforehand. It was like, you know, to touch a, a woman physically is to touch her emotion. As as I had, that was the theory I went in with. So I was like, I'm going to make out with that girl and she's going to get hooked. That's what I'm going to do. And so that was uh, part of my plan. And then those little conversations. Yes, I was not the macho guy either, Bracken. Believe it or not. Oh, I believe you, Kirk. All right. Go ahead. Have either of you ever had a song written about you? <laughs> oh, Who asked? The timing of that. 
Oh, I have had a song written about me. It's called Blindsided. Uh, I put out the very spark that I ignited, blindsided. That'd be uh, Carly Waddell wrote that about me. Someone just <laughs> wanted a rise out of you, Kirk. Yeah, that's good. I don't care. It's the intro song. You saw that uh, Ryan Woods and Nick Riker are doing a Bachelorette podcast on ORM, and the intro music is that song. It's, it's a beautiful moment, Kirk, that someone was so touched by you that they wrote a song lamenting the loss of you in their life. Yeah, just a heartbreaker. <laughs> six weeks you weren't ready to get married huh uh that was three weeks actually 20 days 20 days bracken 20 days and you blindsided her you know what i i put out the 20 days that's it. it 20 days from the day i met her to the day i broke up with her yeah america hated me for it <laughs> <laughs> how could I, how dare i date a girl for less than three weeks and break up can you imagine though the opposite if it wasn't televised you came home to like your friends and family and you're like hey i met this girl 20 days ago can i propose they'd be like you're an idiot do not dare do that man did i get crucified we yes. can move on <laughs> uh sweet spot training used in cycling for running use heart rate a stride power meter rpe i don't know if they're that's jeremy whitley i don't know if he's asking should it be used or how do we go about doing it um, sweet spot training is basically extended tempo work. And I think it's a great use in, in running. I think that it gets demonized as gray area running, but I think that it builds staying power for people that need that. It's tough to do though, without doing it by power. So I think. Wait, explain, explain what that, I don't know what this is. Explain this a little more in detail. So sweet spot training and cycling is where they'll do like 20, 40, you know, 50 minute sometimes, but like long 10, 15, 20, 30 minute intervals. They're like long tempo intervals and they call them sweet spot training where it's slower than tempo, but it's faster than aerobic. What's the purpose? Staying power. Just stay power. Yeah. It's like a really mental, engine. Mentally gritty workout. Cause if you're working in an uncomfortable state for up to an hour, so they're long extended intervals. Like an example of that could be like three mile repeat yeah. for us, let's say. So we're going hard for 15 to 5k, 10k intervals. Got it. <clears throat> I think there's a power to it. And I think it belongs uphill, to be honest. I think uphill sweet spot intervals are a great way to do it. But because our power meters are just not where cycling's power meters are at, then you have to find, like you said, Jeremy, how do I measure that? And whether it's perceived effort, whether it's heart rate, whether it's at a pace or just on the incline treadmill, no. And I know this is about what I could do for a two hour race or a 90 minute race, then, then that's what you do. Mm -hmm. Um, one more from Nick Whalen. How do you determine pace during a race? And it's a simple answer, but I want you to go for workouts. Well, an OCR, OCR race, I think is referring yeah. to. Yeah. You dial in your effort and work rate during workouts and simulations. And by the time you get to race day, you know what that feeling is like. And you combine that with latching onto someone and getting nasty. I think pace in trail running and OCR has way more the, the word should be feel, not pace. Yes. Like determine effort. what feel or effort you should go at during a race. And that comes down to knowing your body. It just does. Like you, pace obviously is tough. I think he's talking about wondering about managing efforts. And, and it, it's all about that versus pace, which Nick knows. But mm -hmm. um, And you, you get that question a lot as a coach, don't you? About like, what pace should I do this at? Or how fast should I go out? There's not a right answer when it comes to off uh like on trail running it's like you, you got to know your body so i like half the reason i like we talk about the compromise running half the reason i like the compromise running is then you know what pace and effort your body can sustain mm -hmm. when your running has been broken and that is the feel 
that's half the battle with compromise running is just understanding the feel of that. So when race day comes, you can manage that effort. So um, that would be my answer to that. On that Hosick episode, Ian Hosick, we talked about there is a feel to compromise running and there's a skill to it. And both of those components are why you need to get your pacing right. Because it, once you once you get the skill down of moving in and out and you, you match that to the feeling of what's sustainable, then you can do it in any race you get to. Whether it's flat, mm-hmm. cold, hot, uphill, downhill, doesn't matter. Yes, sir. I agree. Um, what's your honest opinion on Dia's flow training? Worth experimenting with? It's a good question. It has me curious. I'm going to be honest. And it has me curious coming back from injury because... From what I'm understanding, you're not really overstressing the system on any particular day. You're just kind of chipping away at it every day. And so I'm curious from like an injury prevention standpoint. I'm also curious if could it cause more injury by feeding a little bit. I just am very curious about the staying healthy component. I think our bodies will respond to anything if we do it consistently. Just pick something and go. So I think there could be merit to it. I have not done it yet. I don't know if I'm, I want to be my own guinea pig. I hate to say it. Yeah. But it, what about you? What do you think? When it comes to new products, new systems, new ideologies, I'm a skeptic. And the skeptic in me says this has not been around long enough to have any sort of proof for it. So I respect Rich. I respect his theories. I respect the years he's put into it. But in terms of implementing it, I don't think we have longer than a year and a half or two years of an athlete profile to look at. And not enough of them have been fully high trained athletes when they started it. And so the skeptic in me would say anyone can start something when they're not at a high level of, of fitness, mm-hmm. build that up over the course of a year or two and improve constantly. But what happens in year two, year three, year four, what happens when you take a high level athlete and do it? And so that that's what I want to know. I don't think that I could sign off on this is the way you need to train, but I also can't dismiss it because it's intriguing and there's some merit to it. But this is why in in my opinion, you don't announce things as big as he announced it until you have years of work into the proof. Now, in his opinion, he had years of looking back into all the numbers he's ever done. But in terms of using it as the only piece of a program, there are years to be done still before it's ever proved or disproved. So I think it's great to to try it, but I can't yet sign off on it. I would really like to have an off mic conversation with VJ Jones about it. I think he would be our best bet at understanding if one, if he's truly done that style of training consistently or a hybrid and two, what his uncandid or his candid thoughts are about it. Uh, I would be curious to see what his, what his take is. Cause I think he probably knows it or should know it better than anybody other than rich. So mm-hmm. um, I'd be curious there. Um, another question. Yeah. From uh, B Crave. B Crave OCR, will you beat Bracken in your first race back against each other? Everybody wants to know. They want to pit us against each other. They want us to argue. They want us to fight, and they want us to race. If we have a real fight, folks, we'll we'll remedy it on like a podcast. You'll hear about it. We'll we'll talk it out. Um, he also asks, "Are you doing No Shave November?" No, Bracken. No. You know what? I would look like a shipwreck survivor. I would look so patchy and gaunt and awful. Come on now. <laughs> Try to look like for my wife. You would look good with a bald head and a grown beard, though. Some people look, like, nasty. Like, you would not mess with that dude. Bald head, big beard. You should do it. I don't know if I'm even capable of growing a big beard. Mm, but one way to find out. One way to find out. All right. Uh, B Boggs 13 asks, what's the most frustrated a competitor has made you on course? That's an easy one for me. 
I had a race where uh, several different races where an athlete spent the entire race cheating and did not care however many times fellow athletes announced to that athlete that we see you cheating, you have to stop. In particular, there was a race where there was a lot of intentional impeding of progress in a, in a race and to the point of stopping to rest in a tight, narrow passageway and spreading themselves out so no one could pass because they were gassed and they were out of breath and they stopped, spread arms and legs out and wouldn't let people pass until they caught their breath. Can't imagine who this was. Truly frustrated. Yes. How about you, Kirk? Um, I uh, have been frustrated when got stuck on single track trail um, at Tahoe that in 2017 when we had the 17.3 mile race. I don't know if you recall, they stuck us on single track going up right away, like a mile of single track. And I was jammed. I was jammed and there was no way around. And it was a conga line of people. And it was, in my opinion, not the best course design for a massive field. And I was sitting sitting there in panic mode. And I was notably getting angry. And I was angry at the course design. Yeah. I was I thought it was silly. And that was probably the most frustrated I've ever been. Um, I wasn't prepared to go out hard enough at altitude to get myself in position. And so because that would have been a bad move. So anyways, that was uh, that was frustrating. That'd be it. That is a that, single track is one of the most beautiful things to run on this planet. But in the midst of a race, if the race hasn't spread out yet, it is frustrating. Mm-hmm. Brian Gwiski asks, did you guys actually enjoy running? <laughs> uh, I, God damn it. Gosh, dang it. I mean, running earlier this week would have me saying a very profound yes. Yes. Sometimes you? you don't know what you have until it's gone. I don't and I are head over heels with running right now in this moment. I am in love with running. I'm on like the first date with running again, though. I got the butterflies and everything. Ask me when the honeymoon phase is over and I'm in like, you know, my 10th year of marriage. When we'll see that. Blindsided. Oh, if I'm blindsided, that'd fire me up. I, I will say that running the love and hate are not, you know, far apart. They're very similar. I will say that I don't love my recovery runs. I will say I tend, even if the workout doesn't go good, something about the sting of hard work is addicting and recovery run seems like a means to an end or like something I just, I have to do in order to get to my next day. And so I don't particularly enjoy them. I also generally feel like crap on them. And I also want to be done quicker on them because I'm like not very enjoying, enjoying it. A lot of times that's where I stand. Um, not always because I have to go out my door and I'm running in the city cause I'm crammed for time and I'm not on a beautiful trail and all that. But I think that's normal. I would say, how about you? Like I much prefer stingy workouts. I really look forward to workouts and big efforts. I also weirdly enjoy recovery runs. I have no patience for the other percent of my 80, just the easy aerobic runs. If I'm recovering, it's with purpose. I'm okay. Like, that's fine. But when I'm in between recovery and my next big workout, I feel like, oh, I just, I want to be doing anything else than waiting for the next big one. And it's, it's those just mm-hmm. standard aerobic runs that that's where I really crave a training partner where you can just go out and chat because doing that alone, those are the runs that I do not have any love for. That's where I wish I had a training partner for. I mean, it's nice for the quality sessions, but it would be really nice for the chill efforts. And that could be a sign too, that maybe I'm running just a little too fast on my recovery runs. I just need to really relax. We'll see. Um, Eric was here. Eric was here. What is your favorite cocktail? Hmm. Bracken? 
What's your favorite cocktail? Are we talking actually like some sort of mix? Uh, up to you. I think just any non-beer drink. Aldi wine. Aldi wine. <laughs> Currently, yes. <laughs> what is the specific brand? Doesn't matter. It is a smorgasbord of delight at Aldi for very, very little investment. But I mean, I, 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 there are very few things I don't like. I mean, I like a good old fashioned, um, ah, man, just about anything. But yeah, Aldi wine, Lisa and I have a couple glasses of wine per week and mm. it's almost always Aldi. Nice. What is the price point on a, on a nice premium bottle of Aldi wine? Premium at Aldi, you're looking at 11 to 13.99, but serviceable goes from 3.99 to 7.99. Nice. And that's your wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't stand on ceremony. Um, my favorite mixed cocktail. Uh, so something, so I'm kind of a whiskey connoisseur. Um, I, and I'll admit that I have a nightcap pretty much every night. People have their glass of wine. I have two fingers of like whiskey. Um, and I'm really into making bitters. So I make homemade bitters, um, which is like a flavor profile to, you can add to drink. So at home right now I have hazelnut, cherry, orange, apple, house, a bunch of them anyways. So I make Manhattan at night. So a little sweet vermouth. I take some of my homemade bitters and put a drop or two in there. And then I mix it with some high West double rye whiskey, uh, to make the perfect Manhattan. Um, look at us. Yeah. Make your own bitters and Aldi wine. We <laughs> couldn't <laughs> be further apart. Two peas in a pod. Uh, <laughs> I only have one more question in my screenshots bracken. Oh, I've got some. Well, that's fine. Good. What are your athletic and mental flaws that you know you have to work on? I think that my first run back would be a pretty glaringly obvious one. <laughs> yeah. You get out the door and you push that button and you push it down. I'm just really bad in the in-between area. I'm all in or all out and I, I'm really bad in between. And Five months of buildup was a lot for me. So, uh, yeah, I, I need to work on um, listening to my body better as we all do. But uh, I think I just I need to work on that for sure. Um, that's it. That's one of my biggest flaws. And I've been very open with mine that I have lost my mental edge over the last several years that I got complacent and inconsistent with training, which led to inconsistencies mentally. And so all of my focus on this rehab recovery comeback, if you will, is about consistency and consistency leads to being an animal. Mm. You know how you say you started saying this and, and I've kind of run with it sometimes, but pay now or pay later. Mm -hmm. And some lessons I've learned is there's two ways. One, if you remember, I did the 5k time trial right before I got injured and I was coming off of a week off. I had just done some cross training. I was a week back to running. I had really good prior fitness though. Don't get me wrong. And I still was able to run a respectable 5k in like 1558. Now I take five months off and I go run 618 pace, which isn't records, but for three miles. And what I'm realizing is days off or time off is not going to set you back as much as you think it will. Everybody thinks you're going to lose so much fitness. And, and so when it says pay now or pay later, like pay now, if any little thing has popped up, pay now, pay now, pay now. And that's been driven home with me knowing like I can keep fitness and I'm could probably rebuild it quicker than I think. What the heck is even a week off if you got a little niggle or nagle popping up? So that's uh, something you said that's really stuck with me. And I think I'm going to really like adhere to that that model. I think I end up paying later more often than I pay now. And so that would be a flaw of mine that I'm going to reverse. I like Thanks that. Thanks for that, Bracken. Thank Daniel Cormier. Mm -hmm. What worries you most about a race? Hmm. Coming to OCR, I assume. We'll I stick think. with Sure. I, I'll answer mine just from a general running perspective. 
Okay. What worries me the most about a race would, as college athletes, we were cerebral. You know, you have your power meter or your rev limiter, and it slowly rises until you surpass your lactate threshold and you kick home and it's well timed out. And my biggest fear typically is getting out too hard and then blowing up the rest of my race, which is also a fault because everybody gets out too hard. So, um, so my biggest fear is getting lost early in a race or going out too hard and then blowing up. So it's finding that balance. I say it's always a very, like very stressful time. That first, like, I don't know, two, three minutes of a race seems just super intense and overextending. And that's, that's always like my reticency when it comes to the start gun. What about you? Mine is always the middle of a race. Uh, mm. My biggest fear in any competition is losing. And my losses tend to come when I get dropped. Like very rarely do I have bad races if I make it to the final stages of a race still in the race. So all of my pre-race anxiety centers around not being able to stay in it until the end comes into sight. Getting dropped is always my biggest fear. Yeah. Well, I think it's normal for people to, once they are lost, that they're going to fade home once their connect has gone, especially when you're looking at the front end of a race field mm -hmm. and know that the podium's in sight. Because, you know, the tough thing is, is like, if I'm not even going to be top three or top five, then what am I... Like it almost feels like then the, the task at hand has not been completed. I understand that mindset. All of us in the top 15 in the U.S. National Series have that mindset. So I get it. Once that slips, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah, very mm -hmm. much so. I got one more question on my end, and then I'll let you rattle them off till we're done. All right. Dylan Scott asks, how do y'all taper for races, and what are the approaches for different distances? We've covered we, that. We did a tapering episode, haven't we? Yes, we did. Yeah. Check out the tapering episode, Dylan Scott. But as you like to say, the longer the build, the longer the taper, mm -hmm. right? And also, as far as approaching different distances, really, we're not even tapering for any of these races that we typically do, like the one once a month race schedule. You're more just recovering so your body's freshening up for that race. True tapers are only happening like once, maybe twice a year. Really, it's just deloading a little bit and making sure you're recovered, which there's a difference between being recovered and being tapered. Right. So I just want to clarify there. Yeah, most of us aren't trying to peak very often. And the great mm -hmm. thing that I like to always think back and tell people is that you guys have had so many great workouts off your normal routine. And a lot of those great workouts would have been great races if that would have been a race day. And so most of the time, we just have to get out of our own way and get there healthy and rested on race day. And so mm -hmm. that generally just means an extra rest day for me. And I'm ready to rock. The bigger the race, the more you sometimes want to prime up and perfect your build. But for a long season, do what you normally do. Just make sure that you're healthy and rested. Extra rest day that week leading up or just cutting like your recovery run a mile or two shorter than you normally would. Cut the last third off of your interval session you normally would do. Just a little less volume, maybe an extra rest day. Your body should come around for a Saturday race. At least get you back to 90%, which is which is a good place to race at. So little example of this. I ran three one-mile races one summer. One was on a track, two were on the roads. And the first one on the track, I was still coaching high school at the time. And I did a uh, an interval workout with the guys in the morning. <clears throat> Got about seven and a half miles worth of, of, of work in. And then about six hours later, I ran a one-mile race. And I ran like, I don't know, 426. And then Impressive. a couple of weeks later, I did a one mile road race and I ran really easy the day before and the day before that and slept in a little bit that day and took it seriously. And I ran 433. 
And then a couple of weeks later, I was roofing a, our, my dad's garage all day the day before. It was hot. It was in the 90s. And then the next day in the middle of it, he said, you know what, you should go. And I, and I know I've said this already, but I hopped off the roof, rinsed all like the shingle debris off, drove up to Madison, got out, warmed up and ran 420. So I did three races. Two of them I did not take seriously. One of them I trained already that day. And those were my two best races. Now, it doesn't mean that that primed me for the race, but it means I wasn't encumbered by all this anxiety and buildup. And I didn't make the race weightier in my mind than it needed to be. I just kind of went with the moment and did it. And hey, whatever happens, happens. And I was able to use all my fitness that day, the day where I rested up a little bit more and thought about it all evening and then all day. And my mind, I think, built it up a little bit and I wasn't able to use all my fitness. So the most important thing you can do is get to race day ready to race. You know, I think there's a lot of merit to something John Alvin said during his episode, which is he likes to race with a little tension on the legs, he calls it. He notices that whether it's a mental thing or a physical thing, if he's too snappy or too um, recovered or tapered, he doesn't race well. He does a lot better with, I think his his phrase was tension on the legs. And there's some merit to that. And I'm sure there's a science to it that I don't know exactly. But um, that's just can that's comfort in knowing that you don't have to overthink your your taper. As long as you just dial the throttle back a little bit, you should be okay because you've been training that way for how long leading up. So I'm glad you touched on that a little more. Good. I hope it hits home for some people. Why doesn't elite running always translate to obstacle racing? Why doesn't elite trail running always translate to Spartan? Was it just the strength component? A couple of reasons. The first reason is you take a runner who's accomplished and does well in what they already know and they're already good at, and then they come and they get their ass handed to them. Why would they want to come back? I'm going to go right back to what I, it feels good to win. It feels good to be the best. And here I just came and left ashamed and embarrassed. So I think half the field gets knocked out right away there. They go back to right what they know. Mm-hmm. I think that's reason number one. And I think burpees, honestly, obstacle failures and burpees, no matter how great of an athlete you are, you're, you're going to struggle, especially if you're an elite level runner, you're going to struggle with the grip component or the strength component. And the first time you fail an obstacle, your race is done. It's just over. And, and it's not even fair to judge someone on your first race. I think you are your third race. I, I think that yeah. determines, Matt Novakovich said that, you are your third race. By your third race, you have an idea of what you can be in the sport. And outside of like a Johnny or a Ryan Kempson, we haven't really seen people go from one level to like three levels higher. Usually by your third race, you're at least showing flashes of what you could do. Like Ryan Woods, for example. He was still getting his butt kicked in his third race, but people were already realizing as soon as he cuts down on some of these failures, like he has the mentality for this. He has the body type for it. He has the resistance to this type of impact to do it. And so you can't judge him by the first one, but you're right. Why would someone come back for the second unless they really wanted to see it through to the finish? That's why all of us outcasts who weren't quite good enough to be the top end of road racing mm-hmm. or even trail racing. We're good, but you know we're good local 5K weekend road warriors and, and we wanted something more. And that's why we stay because we have a new family where they're going back to their old family yeah, and they want to get their comfort zone. Yeah, I think that's it. And I also think, you know, we talked about with Rich Ryan about rhythm running and rhythm running like that is something that is so trained and any little break in that rhythm is so hard for people to, to come back from. And, and I think when you've been rhythm running and pace oriented and heart rate based for a decade or two decades, some of these runners are, and then you go and their heart rates all over the place and their rhythms broken every five seconds like they just can't take that many hits and and they end up not being able to use their fitness and they don't stay long enough to. 
they they do a race or two and they're out and that's that's where people are missing the mark i think most every single athlete if they truly wanted to that was a good trail runner or a a good road runner if they really wanted to and they made it their mission they could become good i think it's for a lack of drive not for a lack of ability i agree yeah i don't think i don't think any of them couldn't compete with us if they gave it a year and got in the gym and did what they need to i firmly believe that almost every national champion runner i've ever known could be in the mix for a spartan world championship if they just gave it six months to a year the problem is why would they you know, they're either making a living running and they don't want to risk it, or they're making their living doing something else and running on the side at a high level. And there's not room in their life for such a big pursuit. Yep. That's it. Do you have any superstitions before a race or routines? Why don't you leave that one off? You used to have a ton. I know you were like Mr. Superstition back in the day. Yeah. You said you talked about high school. You had to have the perfect. Oh, this, oh yeah. Way, day. way back growing up. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that. That's interesting. I mean, I used to have to eat the same thing, wear the same shoes, the same socks, the same underwear, the, the same. I listened to the same playlist all day long to keep me calm. And then the same pump up playlist when I was finally allowing myself to get the nerves rolling and get racing. I had to do the same warm up, the same. I had to tie my shoes in the same manner, always left foot first, then the right. I did to get the same number of strides. I had to feel the exact same thing. If I clicked my heel with my other foot as I ran by, I had to, I had to clip the other one to even it out before. Like I was super hung up on things. And over the years, I've been able to smooth out some of those neurotic edges. And now I don't have any other than shave my head and buzz up the face the night before a race. That's really about it. No other minor superstitions that are in the back of your head? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I have to have the right shoes. I, I don't think I could show up to a off-road race with my road shoes and do fine. And there are some people that could just do that mm-hmm. or vice versa. I think I'd probably get thrown off by gear changes. But other than that, I don't I don't think I have any big hangups. Doesn't mean I'm not nervous anymore, but I don't have to I'm not a slave to my routine anymore. Yeah, the day you're not nervous, the day you should stop doing this. Um I'm really caught up on my night before the night before is night sleep. Like my Thursday night sleep, if we have a Saturday race, I can get two to four hours of sleep the night of a race and I'm not superstitious or hung up. But if I don't get good sleep on that Thursday night, I go in with like a little impending doom feeling or a cloud over my head. I think a lot of people are that way, but that that night before the night before is key for me. So I get a little superstitious. I'm in bed super early. I like really try to calm myself down. I'm still still usually staying at my own house, so I have my own bed. I may even throw a little NyQuil down the hatch to ensure I sleep, like I've done that before, because I, I I'm like so superstitious about that night's sleep. Hmm. Um, I some could call that just being smart, and some could call that superstition. Um, and then I need something need something dense the night before. Uh, I eat dirty the night before a race, so burger, pizza. I feel like those are my two things that I feel like if I get good night's sleep and I get something dense and gross in my body, uh, I think then I can rest easy. Tell you what, OCR was the greatest thing ever for my pre-race anxiety. Because even coming out of college, I was still pretty much a head case. And the unpredictable nature of traveling on a really shoestring budget to races for my first two or three years in that sport, it just, it forced me out of my comfort zone. You fly budget airlines and you fly trying to get the cheapest routes. You are the first person bumped off a flight. You are the first flight that gets delayed in a holding pattern or on the runway. 
you're the first hotel room that gets bumped off when the hotel's full. And I just went through a couple of years of really bizarre traveling and really terrible night before races and eating out of a hotel vending machine, you know, things that just pop up that you're not prepared for as a young 20 something that just finally ripped off the bandaid. And it's like, hey, we're going to push you off the cliff. You're going to either fly or you're going to hit the ground. And I had enough good races where I flew rather than hitting the ground where I finally realized I might even race best off a terrible night before because it just removes all the other nonsense. And now it's like, well, screw it. If I went through all this nonsense, <laughs> you can be damn sure I'm going to go out there and try to break someone's heart out. So mm. it's, it's, it's interesting. It took, it just took awful experiences to put in perspective that I don't need any of that. I can just go do this. There's a lot of merit in like being in that fight or flight mode, like, oh, I'm late to my race or, oh, I'm, I'm, my hotel got booked or my flight's delayed. And like you get in this fight or flight mode and your body, like your adrenals are high and everything, your cortisol's high and everything that honestly, that stress can sometimes be fuel. I hate to say it, but like yeah. sometimes being too relaxed and too tapered and too like chill can be a bad thing. Like sometimes it's good to have a little anxiousness running through you and a little adrenaline, a little like chaos because I don't think I've ever done poorly when suddenly chaotic situations have been thrown at me. Last minute time trials have been decided on um, anything like that. So I think there's some merit to that. Yeah. And I know I've said this, but to this day, the most money I won at a single race came from the worst travel experience the day before. I couldn't walk downstairs until Thursday of that week. I was so destroyed from a, a mountain championship race. I couldn't run until Friday and I flew out Friday afternoon after school, got to the hotel at three in the morning and got up at 540 or 440 or something to eat breakfast and get to the race. If you did that the night before a big workout, half the time you wouldn't even get out the door. You'd be like, screw it. It's not worth it. And I went out and I won my biggest prize purse <laughs> I ever won. Took down some pro trail runners, you know, legitimate world champion trail runners and Olympic trials athletes in one race. Just because I got there frustrated and like none of you have any idea how frustrated I am right now. So let's go do this. So what race was that? That was uh, at the inaugural Atlas race out in Washougal. Mm, awesome. Max King, John Riccardi, they were eighth and ninth at the steeplechase uh, Olympic trials that year. Max King had won Mountain Worlds a year prior or two years prior. You stud, you stud. You know what's another thing before a race? I guess we're a little tangenting now, but is... I remember the race, you know, when Ryan Woods had his big breakout performance at San Jose to start mm -hmm. the US National Series. I mean, he, I mean, it was probably one of the most impressive race performances I've ever seen. It was a Cody Moat style beatdown. It was incredible. And it's when I just joined Strava and he went for a shakeout run the day before. And he said, legs feel too damn good today. Damn it. I'm cursed. Because a lot of us runners have a superstition with if your legs feel too poppy the day before a race... It indicates that you're going to have a bad one the next day. And I was always hung up on, I wanted my legs to feel like trash the day before a race. Cause then they'd be, they possibly aren't going to feel like trash two days in a row. Right. And how often the legs possibly feel good two days in a row. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was funny that he had the same mindset. And then he goes out and he smashes San Jose after having a great floating shakeout run the day before. That was another superstition that I kind of got over. Like if I had a good run the day before a race, I was like, shoot. And if I had a shitty one, then I thought it was going to be good. doesn't matter. Last one that, that, that there's more there, but this is the one we're going to end on today. Biggest blow ups you've ever had in a race. Oh, my first 400 meters in eighth grade. <laughs> you've talked about that one. <laughs> I walked across the finish line to 400 meters. <laughs> I ran a 65. Ooh. No, at 62, it hurt bad. I had a, uh, I had a 30 meter lead at the 200 meter mark. 
and I lost by 30 meters. So you want to know how that last hundred went? I had a piano on my back and I had boat anchors tied to both legs. And it was the most embarrassing I've ever been, most embarrassed I've ever been in athletics in my entire life as tears streamed across my face as I crossed the finish line. It was bad. How about you? My biggest track blow up was also my most embarrassing. So there, there's, there's some social components to this as well. When Lisa and I met, she was in a relationship and I was as respectful of that as I could be. But I also recognized that like, I'm going to marry this girl someday. Did so. you have a crush on her instantly? You knew. Yeah. Yeah. I, I very rarely felt anything even remotely close to that. And I met her. I'm like, okay, there's something different here. So did you I, let her know right away? Hold on. I'm not done with my questioning. Did you, <laughs> did she have an idea here or were you playing it cool? Like you would on the bachelorette? She knew I was interested, but you told her situation. I couldn't pursue her in the normal way that I probably would have. So even though she had a boyfriend, you like made it known to her that like, Hey, like I, I, I like you. I didn't tell her that, but I certainly showed interest above what someone you've just met would show. Okay. If that makes sense. Yes. Makes sense. Someone else in the group probably wouldn't have been like, wow, he's hitting on her, but her boyfriend probably would have been like, this guy's spending too much time talking to her kind of deal. Got it. So they came in a group to the first indoor track meet of the year. And I was running the mile and I was fit and I was fast. And it was my first college mile. Who is they? Uh, her, her boyfriend and a couple of their friends because she had been on the track team prior and she lived with people on the track team. So they all showed up in the social setting. He wasn't a part of it, but he came with her. So I went out at 419 pace and I thought I'm going to hang with this and I'm going to run like 415 today. I was, I was really, really overconfident. I, my lifetime PR was 426 at the time. <laughs> first, first race, <laughs> of the year. my first, really my first college mile ever, second college in, track race ever. And I got on the leader and at the half, I was feeling good. And I think it was like 208, 209 through the half. And I made my move and I went to the front and I ran like, we were indoors. So we're running 200 meter laps and I ran like a 33, which is, mm. no, no, no. I would have run a, a 32. No, not even. Probably what, 31. 32, 31, ran another 31 and then ran like 39, 45, 48. Oh and basically crawled across the line for like 426, 425. <laughs> I took that last. How long time. did you have the lead for? That Those two laps. Because everyone just strung out on me. It was a good field. There were good people in the field. There were people on my team that were better than me. But it was my first real college race. I was spiked up in new spikes. And a girl I had a crush on was there. And I was going to run fast in front of her. And I, and he, that, the guy was going to be like, oh, this is some alpha. I can't continue. You know, I got all this in my mind. And I blew up so horribly my last quarter was probably like 86 seconds <laughs> and oh man and i took dead last i went from first to last in about 600 meters you and, know what though, Brandon? and it was terrible you you need to adopt that mentality more now you'll have the fitness to back it up that yeah. bracken is that ryan kempson who isn't afraid to be hurt to hurt others yeah i would love to see bracken epically blow up in a race well you did again so my only other giant, giant blow up was lambo Rainbow Field. Yeah, I almost got you. I still was in the mentality that I'm a damn killer, but my fitness wasn't what it used to be. And I went out and I led that race relatively big for a stadium race. And I blew up hard. And every person who went past me, I couldn't even respond to. They just went past and, and it was awful. I've never heard my breath 
breathing like that in a race. It was so spectacularly just awful that I'll, I'll, I'll never, Kent and I were just talking about this on our, on our run the other day because he was in that race and he passed me with less than a quarter mile to go. Mm-hmm. And I did not increase the effort one bit because there was no more. He said, I, I, I was prepared for this kick to the finish. I caught up to you. You didn't even look at me. <laughs> you just had this death look on your face and you were making weird noises. But uh, I, I was talking to him about how I, I have never exploded that bad. And after a bad race, you get to a point where you you stop, you think, oh, I could have done better. I could have been tougher. You know, it's, it starts to fade how badly it really hurts. And you start to think, oh, I could do that. That one's never left me. I can still to this day feel exactly how it felt to be just like literally out of energy. And all you can do is hope that the finish line gets there before everyone else does. Mm-hmm. You were I, the one uh, locking me down. Yeah, you looked over your shoulder at me a couple of times. I got little screenshots in my mind of that is you're power hiking up stadium stairs, which you never do. And I'm still running going like, there's a chance I get this guy. You know, when you do the over the shoulder look, you know, somebody's not, not feeling so, you know, you had a, cause I was in second for a while. I had a Killian and Kent. I don't know if you saw that. Um, but, uh, I led them through the sandbag carry, which was maybe like a mile into the race. Um, and then they passed me at the end of that. But anyways, uh, you probably put 30 seconds on us in a half mile bracket. Mm-hmm. You bear crawled at six minute mile pace underneath the bear crawl. Like I'd never seen somebody move like an actual animal before in my entire life. The gun went off and you were to the other side of the bear crawl before half of us were halfway through it. It was incredible. You slithered through everything like a snake. It was one of the most athletic things I've ever seen in a race, the way you moved. I mean, you moved like freaking Smeagol moves in like Lord of the Rings. That's not like, a Dude, but he's like on all fours, slithering around stuff like a prehistoric creature. That was you. I, I, I thought, wow, this guy's the real deal is what I thought. I did too. And, then, and so you, I, knowing the last races that I saw that you went out, like that, the last time I saw that fire in your eyes, I ended up beating you, but not because I really deserved to that day, was the Welch Ski Village mountain race. Mm. Woods was there. Kempson was there. I was there. Rich Ryan was there. Forrest Bogue was there. Mike Ferguson was there. I think Caskey was there. Ben Kinsinger came out. A bunch of guys. And you went out to win that race with Ryan Woods the year he won the U.S. National Series. Ryan Kempson, who goes out like a bat out of hell. And you were in position to win that race even against Woodsy. Mm-hmm. That's the Bracken. That's the last time I saw Bracken like that. Yep. And th- that's that's one of those, like, who knows what, what we'd be chatting about if that race goes different, you know? But it went the way it went, and it cemented the training style I was falling into, and that's th- those are the ruts we get into. That's what we're both doing this next uh, 2021 Bracken, that racing style. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No more questions? Should we, should we give him one more bonus? Sure, one more bonus. What is yep. the most basic part of training that most people overlook or ignore? The most basic part of training. Man, I would have to say, I just had this conversation with an athlete uh, yesterday, the email, like the most basic part of training that people uh, ignore is the recovery aspect. Yeah, It's so simple, but it's true. I mean, everything's glorified. The hard efforts are glorified and the recovery efforts are not. And um, the theme amongst all of the good athletes we've interviewed is so much of the conversation comes back to recovery. It's astounding. Yeah. So I'm going to go with recovery in general. What about you? I think I would have said that, but I'm just going to sum it up in more of a broad term and just say purpose, purpose. Every successful athlete has purpose to their day, to their week, to their month. It all flows together towards a specific purpose. 
again, Ryan Kent and I were having a lot of conversations this past week. It was so nice having him out here. Mm -hmm. it, it reminded me what, what life would be like with the training partner. And it was a great reminder of what people at the top are doing because this guy lives it day in and day out. But we were talking about Hunter's ability to be so purposeful in his preparation because he bounces mm -hmm. between venues, but he arrives ready to rock because every second of every workout is purposeful. He just doesn't do things randomly. Even when it looks like he is, they all have a purpose. And, and I think we could all use a bit of that in our lives where he can just break down a race or a competition or a season and identify what he needs when, and every workout is structured to arrive there healthy and fit and purpose, purposeful recovery, purposeful workouts, progression in your workouts, but just purpose. Is there ever a time, you know, we talk about exercise versus training, like are you exercise or uh, exercising or are you training? So that comes back to purpose. Do you think there ever is a time when it's okay to not have purpose or should there always be purpose? Like right now, if nobody knows they're going to, they're not going to race until let's say spring at the earliest. Is it okay not to have purpose right now? Or do you think there still has to be some sort of Of course, it's okay for most people to be purposeless for large chunks of the year. But if your goal is to be the best athlete you can be, then your fun has to come from your purpose. You know, Hunter does what he wants to do and he's spectacular at it. So he doesn't need to choose. For the weekend warrior to the everyman open athlete, yeah, take some time and do your fun. But uh, the farther we drift away from structure, the farther we have to get back towards structure. And it's a dangerous road, which I have found. And so, no, I'm, I'm going to lose myself in structure. Happy, fun, purposeful structure. Okay. I like that answer. And that's and the end of our AMA. We can get anything crazy. Which, yeah. Well. Oh, I missed some, one. Yeah. Somebody asked you about a race poop story. Yeah. I missed a couple here. I thought we were done. We're not. Race. I don't have a race poop story. All my pooping comes in training. <laughs> so when I have one, I'll share it. Well, how'd you get that dialed in then if you if you have bathroom issues in training, but on race day, you don't? Because on race day, I'm so nervous that everything's out by the time I leave my hotel room. On average, from the time you wake up to the time the start line happens, how many times you go into the bathroom? Poop, I'd say five. Really? Maybe four. Four, four would be the, the average. Four would be the minimum. Just Just nervous shits. Yeah, it's all out. Okay, good for you. It's like a cleanse. It's good for your race in light, aren't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I was wrong, Kirk. We have more. Hey. Favorite band? Ooh, my favorite band. That's an impossible question to answer. Everybody knows that, right? Because you got to um, pick genres. Yeah, you have to pick genres. I really gravitate towards um, singer-songwriter style still. like I'm kind of like this weird closet, like granola-eating hippie. So I'm into some, uh, some of that type of music, just like folky guy with a guitar, or somebody with like banjos and violins singing about life and telling a story in the process. I really enjoy like singer songwriter type stuff like Ben Howard or like Boney Bear, like stuff like that. What about you? I don't even know how I would pick. I'm an eclectic. I just pull from every which direction. It's good. It's good, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to pigeonhole myself. I will listen to anyone and anything. And if I like it, I'm going to listen to more of it. Right on. If you and Kirk had a baby, what is one strength you'd choose from each of you to make the best athlete? Listen, if you and Lisa don't work out, you sound pretty committed, but I'd consider eloping. What would we pick? What would your skill, if you could give the baby one of your traits and one of mine, what would they be? Uh, performance traits, I'm assuming. Like athletic, <laughs> athletic skills. I mean, let's build the perfect baby between you and I here. 
I like this. We're talking about our future. Um, athletically, what would I give? I, I would say my ability to suffer in workouts is pretty high. And I think, I think if we gave some of that ability to you at certain times, maybe it would be a chance for you to improve your fitness just a titch more, for sure. which would result maybe in better performances. So, so I would say train, maybe they'd be able to, to work out like you and race like you and race like me. Okay. They would have your endurance in my left leg. Mm-hmm. I'm into that. We would probably have your hair. I'd prefer your 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 height and like your your inseam. I think you got a, a, an inch or two on me as far as leg length. I think that would maybe help. Take a my bit. skeletal structure. Your skeletal structure, maybe my chest. <laughs> yeah, you, you can take your upper body. Yeah, be your skeletal structure. Yeah. I think we go there. Okay. I think we're probably pretty similar foot speed wise. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think we've got a good baby. That's it. That's Would you choose your hair color? Or not? What's your hair color? My eyebrows. Dark. Listen, I'm not a ginger, folks. My beard is gingy as it gets. My hair color is not red. So I don't mind my hair color. What about you? I don't care. I just want him to have hair. <laughs> he will until he's about 23. He's gonna there lose you it. go. <laughs> Proudest athletic moment ever. Oh, you can start. That's so hard. I still think the first Spartan World Championship I ever went to. I'd never been yeah. at a world championship. I had dedicated nine months of training to that race. I had executed to the absolute maximum of my ability. I took the highest place available to me that day. And it was my first time traveling to a race solo. And I had a like a three-month-old baby at home. We were a year and a half into marriage. Like everything was young, everything was up in the air. I had spent our money on this like gambling trip and came home with several thousand dollars for it. It was just a all-encompassing. I crossed the finish line so satisfied that day. It's one of the most proud, satisfying finish lines I've ever had. I'd like to see that. You were third. You hit a podium in your first Spartan World Championships, right? Yeah. Now, we know that's not the same depth of field it was, but it didn't matter at the time. The field was what it was, and it was Hobie and Cody, and it was all the other people in the world. And I was able to hold off all the other people, and Hobie and Cody were untouchable. So I just did the very best I could have done on that day. I was so locked in, and it was just a perfect overall experience. Unfortunately, (laughs) that was eight years ago. I haven't topped that in eight years in terms of satisfaction. So I've got, I hit a high early. Mm. My, uh, my happiest and most proud Spartan race is um, the world championships this last year. I've ended on a high, Um, going to elevation on a mountain course, um, you know, didn't even really necessarily feel my best that day. I don't know if I told anybody this. I don't even know if you know this. I was on day five of antibiotics. Yep with a sinus infection, I'd felt like absolute shit. Uh, I mean, I was like, not even sure if I was going to, how I was going to feel on the start line. And I went out and took 11th place and there was some dark, dark, dark moments, um, on that second climb, especially. Uh, and I got everything out of my body that day. I think that's what it is. It's crossing that finish line. I was 11th. I was not on a podium. I wasn't even in the top 10, but, uh, I stayed mentally engaged on a body that still wasn't back to par. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think I mentioned any of that publicly. So, I was happy with that. And then um, and then I told this story, I think, on on my get to know your host episode. But uh, my sophomore year of my sophomore year of track in high school, I was a sophomore and I had three seniors on the four by eight and had never been to state. None of them their last chance. And as you know, the track sectional is literally like the last day of school, too. So 
was there one opportunity and I got the baton in third and passed the guy in second and held him off through the finish line to go to state, barely. Uh, top two teams go to state. We took second and uh, I got held up in celebration, which was probably one of the most amazing feelings as like, you know, tears rolled down my teammates face and they got their one chance to go to state. They weren't college level runners, probably their last competitive running memory. And I felt like I was able to, uh, to make that happen. So one of my best is from when I was, I was still 15 then. So long time ago. That's awesome. If I yeah. ever get hoisted up on someone's shoulders, I want to not be wearing split shorts. <laughs> we did. We had like basketball shorts back then in track, oh, yeah. so I, I didn't have them on. No, my shorts went down to my damn knees. I like that. But it had nothing to do with me. It had it had everything to do with helping others go to state, and that was a really good feeling. So that's cool. All right, yeah. two left. Two quick. Two ones. left. Favorite non-fitness related book. Go ahead. Oh, pleasure reading. Favorite book. Uh, sorry, you broke up a little bit there. Uh, for pleasure reading, non-fitness, non-sport, not coaching. Just favorite book to read for pleasure. Hmm. I'm not a nonfiction guy, or I'm not a fiction guy. Are you? I am. Okay. Well, so I don't read fiction at all. Okay. Um, for years, I would say it was, and it, this I can't use, but it was Lance Armstrong's. It's it's not about the bike, my journey back to life. I read that book so many times. <sighs> so did I. Such a disappointment. Um, that would have been one of my inspiring books. Um, you know what? It still can be. It's it just can be, yeah. disappointing knowing the end. Yeah. Um, I don't read a lot for pleasure these days other than, than training stuff. I, I have this book, it's called each moment is the universe and it's called, it's, it's the subtitle is mindfulness meditation in everyday life. I run on the anxious side a little bit and I need to slow down. I need to work on that. And, and that, that book is like just about being present. And that's like a good read and reminder for me. I'm somebody who uses like the Calm app, like on a regular basis on my phone, like things like that. I need to kind of dull my nervous system. So each moment is the universe uh, about mindfulness in everyday life. Uh, I really like that read. So I'd be, I'll, I'll go with that one. Self-help. What about you? This is kind of like favorite band. I I read a lot and I, I don't know if I could choose one, but I'm just going to say Starship Troopers. The book? The book. That movie was awesome. Not at all like the movie. I loved that movie. I bet you did. What was the difference? Uh, everything. There, it, one's a a serious book which with a lot of social commentary in it, and the other one is a schlocky sci-fi campy movie, which is awesome for other reasons. But they, the only correlation is the title and a few of the names. I thought you were going to tell me either Goosebumps or the Harry Potter series. <laughs> Harry Potter series just might be the best series ever written, mm. but never read. It's worth it. When you have kids someday, you can read it to them. All right. Sure. Last one. Best talent outside of running. Your best talent outside of running? Both like of ours. Us. Yeah. Kick it off. Oh, man. I have a photographic memory. Do you really? That would be that would be my talent. Truly photographic? Um, yes. I mean, like when I was in college, I think I said this on a previous podcast, but I had a 2.1 or 3 GPA after my sophomore year of college. And then I realized I had to get my act together and I realized how I learned and that was through visual. So to study for a test, I would not memorize the literature I'd written on the paper. I would take a screenshot in my mind of what each page of my notebook looked like. And then I could remember where everything was written on that notebook and then what the content was. So I would close my eyes and visualize a piece of paper when a question would come up on a test and visualize where that was written on my notebook and then I could put it together. 
And I went and I foreheld my last five semesters of college once I realized I needed to take a photograph in my mind of all of my pages of notes or the text I read or where things were placed. I can meet somebody once. I'll, the face thing is like I can pin it like a like a nail. So uh, anytime I try to memorize anything, I have to write it down and visualize. So I have like a photographic memory. I would say that's fairly accurate. Well, I don't but have anything if, cool like that. But if you if you just tell me things, like if, if it's in conversation, I forget shit all the time. But if I write it down and can take a screenshot in my brain, then I'm, it's a done deal. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It also sucks to, to wait till you're 20 to learn that when you realize like that's how I, I yeah. got to get through life. But yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm fairly above average at a lot of things and not great at anything. But maybe in terms of if you looked at the entire population of the planet, the thing I'm best at might just be like the husband father thing as boring and cliche as that is. I feel like that's probably my highest area. I, I, I sounds like you're nailing it to be honest. I mean, you'll have to ask Lisa, <laughs> she might come on and be like, well, he's all right. But I highly doubt other that. than that, maybe Mario Kart double dash. Never played it. Not the original Mario Kart. I was okay at that, but double dash. That's my savant. I'm oddly good at ping pong and badminton, hmm. but that's an athletic talent. Yeah, I don't have anything else that really spikes the meter. Well, being a good father and husband is, uh, I would say, a pretty good one to have. Bracken. If I'm accurately describing my own abilities, yes. <laughs> You're not biased at all here. <laughs> all right. That concludes our Ask Me Anything. Our regularly scheduled programming continues Tuesday and next Friday. With an interview. With a real interview. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And if you guys feel so inclined, um, if you haven't left a review, we would love that. They've slowed again, and it just warms my heart if we see some come in. Um, and just because we've done two Q&As doesn't mean you can't throw us questions still on our social media. We, uh, we'll screenshot those for the next one. So if they pop up, don't hesitate per usual. Thanks for tuning in. Get ready for next week. We've got a big one coming. Yes, we do. See you, folks. Thank you.